0: Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Welcome, guys. Uh, welcome to Mercy Hill. Like Johnny said, if you're new here, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I know I met a couple folks who are new here this morning. Um, it's, it's a joy to have you guys with us. And I just want to provide some context, especially for you newer people, where we're at. Um, we just finished up a sermon series on Luke that took us, I think, three of our four-and-a-half-year history. Um, we were in Luke for a good, long time, and we're done with it. Luke was great. Um, Luke's a great guy. His his book, his gospel is um, incredible, and it was a, a joy to go through it verse by verse and pick it apart. Uh, but we're done with that, and, and we're moving on to something new and something that I personally am super excited about. Um, This summer we're doing a series called The Mission of God, um, or Missio Dei, which is Latin for The Mission of God. We couldn't really decide on which one we want to go with, so I've been using both interchangeably. Uh, Last week was week one of that series, and so we looked at Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Um, We covered 11 11 chapters last week, a big chunk, Um, but I just want to provide a a quick overview for us, a recap of last week in a minute. but first, I want to introduce to us really this an, an idea. Um, who likes a good story? All of us do, right? Most of us. There's something innate in us humans where we like good stories. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not going to share a good story right now. I just want to take a little poll. Uh, <clears throat> and here's why: because stories matter to us. Like I said, there's something innate where they click with us. Uh, but our stories also define us. Each of us know we have a story. Um, we, somehow we've got to where we are today. Uh, whatever journey, whatever path we've taken, each of us has a story. And our stories, they, they affect us. They shape who we are and how we view the world. They shape uh, our, our perspective of people and how we relate to them. Uh, so for example, some of us come from broken families. Um, I was blessed where my mom and dad had been married for about 25 years. And it's it, it shaped the way that I view people, and I view marriage and families and a lot of the world. Some of us come from broken families. And so our, our view of things like marriage in the world and, and family, your view, if that's you, will be radically different than mine. Um, another example, um, if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride, uh, my name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father, now prepare to die. There's a character in this movie who, when he was a boy, his dad was killed by a six-fingered man. And it consumes him. That part of his story becomes the driving force for his life, where he's, he's hunting down this guy. He wants his revenge, his vengeance. There's some themes in that movie that might not be Christian. Uh, I don't necessarily advocate watching it, although it's pretty funny. Uh, but his, his story, his family history, shapes and gives di- direction to his life. That's my point. Um, another, if you were a soldier, um, thank you for your service. A lot of soldiers come back from overseas deployment with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where the things they've seen, the things they've experienced, completely alter the way that they view people, the way that they live. It, it radically affects them. It changes who they are and how they view the world. Um, my, my father-in-law was overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and he came back, and for six months he was, he was jumpy. Um, particularly whenever he saw anyone who looked like they were of Middle Eastern descent, because for six months he was on high alert. Um, They were having grenades and things lobbed into their camp, and so it affected him. He came back a different man because of the experiences he'd went through. And there's a process of kind of detoxing and and working through that and counseling. Um, But the point is that our stories affect the way we view the world. Our stories shape the way we view the world and our, in the future. Our, our history affects our present, and it affects our future. Um, and that's important because what we're going to look at today, Genesis 12, I believe is the key to understanding the whole story of Scripture, uh, but also beyond that, outside of the pages of the Bible, I think this is going to help us understand the history of the world and the history of our own lives. It's going to help us understand our story and where our stories fit into the the grand story of of the world and of history. And so like I said I want to recap what we covered last week because covering 11 chapters is a lot and it sets the stage for us. And last week Johnny preached on Genesis 1 to 11 and and he worked through kind of the the whole flow of those chapters and what we see is God creates all things and God is the ruler, he's the good creator. But and he we see he creates it for a purpose, for his his glory that that his creation would reflect his glory and his greatness and would worship him. And Then we see in Genesis 3, the fall. We see that us, people, humanity, we choose to be rebellious. We choose to turn from God and to be Lord and, and ruler of our own lives. And as we do that, this curse is introduced into creation, where, where our relationship with God is broken. You remember Johnny had that little hand-drawn diagram up there last week? Um, our relationships with God are broken, that vertical relationship the same time our relationships with other people are broken um, God says in, in Genesis 3 to Adam and to Eve he says um, Eve you're going to want to master your husband um, Adam you're going to uh, I don't want to misquote it um, the point is their the relationship was affected our, our horizontal relationships with other people are now affected by sin and by this curse um, and at the same time our relationship with the rest of creation is affected as well um, God said the ground's going to bring up thorns you're going to um, produce a harvest by the sweat of your brow. It's going to take hard work. And so that's the effects of the fall and the curse. Um, and, and history shows, in Genesis 1 through 11, shows that rebellion became something that was innate to us. It became part of our core. Um, we saw, see the story of Noah and the flood, where Noah is righteous in God's sight, and God puts him in the ark, sends a flood, destroys all the rest of humanity except Noah's family. And as soon as they come out of the ark, there's the there's rainbow and this covenant. But the very next chapter, Noah gets drunk. And, and from there, things just spiral out of control again. Um, until we end up in Genesis 10 and 11 at the Tower of Babel. Where, where men say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to show how great and how awesome we are so that we'll get worship. We'll, we'll be praised for creating this great tower. And God shows up on the scene and he says, this, this won't do. Um, and he splits up their languages and creates these different nations and different people groups and sends them out. And so really the two effects we see of the fall is this broken relationships, and it's this scattering, this sending out people being split up, people being um, sent away. Lastly, we saw clearly in Genesis 1-11 that God is a missional God. And that word missional might not be familiar to us, but it means God is on mission. It's, It's the adverb word, of on a mission i'm missional that means i'm on a mission um god is a missional god and we see in genesis 1 through 11 we'll see today and we see throughout the rest of scripture that god is doing something he has a purpose he has a plan and he's redeeming fallen humanity he's pursuing the people who rebelled against him and he's bringing them back into his family Um, another way we could say that is god is undoing the effects of the fall these broken relationships between God and man, and man and man, and man and woman, and man and creation—God's undoing those things. He, He's restoring. He's making new. We saw all that last week in Genesis one to eleven. I could literally preach another sermon on all that right now. Uh, we're not going to do that though. We're going to flip over to Genesis chapter twelve if you've got your Bible. And instead of 11 chapters, we're going to look at three verses again this morning. This is much more our speed, if you're if you're Mercy Hill, just doing three verses at a time. That's what we did all the way through Luke. <clears throat> so I'm going to read Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, it's the call of Abram. And if you are newer to the Bible, if you're newer to Christ, um, just to provide some context, Abram and Abraham, same guy. Um, Genesis 12, he's Abram, but couple chapters later, the Lord changes his name to Abraham. So as I'm speaking, if I use either of those names, I'm talking about the same guy, um, just to make sure we're clear on that. Um, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, here's what it says. Remember, this is just after the Tower of Babel, when God created these different languages and split people up into various groups and nations and families um, and, and sent them out, really. God's judgment came. Then we hit Genesis 12, and it says, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Just to give you an overview of where we're going this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 12 here, and we're going to look at a couple of the key points, uh, but then we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at why this story of Abram here affects our stories, our lives here today. Uh, and so we're going to pull a couple of main points out here. The first thing I want us to notice, Genesis 12:1, right off the bat, God is the one who initiates. Like we saw last week, God is the pursuer. He is the one who is chasing down people who are rebelling and are running from him and competing with him. But we see here again, God initiates. It's it's almost an awkward transition to the start of a chapter. Um, Now the Lord said to Abraham, um, we don't normally start sentences with now, um, unless you're a mom and your kid's misbehaving. Um, Then you might do it. But it's it's quick. It's abrupt. It's like, out of everything that just happened, boom, um, change of tone, new chapter, now the Lord said to Abraham, "Something's changing. Something's different." So we see God initiates um, when we consider the the plan of God to undo the effects of the fall, to pursue and and renew and recreate. We see here in Genesis twelve one, God is beginning to move His plan forward out of the chaos of the Tower of Babel. It says, "Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram." Here is the first person that. We see since Noah that God comes to and and talks to and interacts with in this way. God is moving his plan forward here. He's initiating it. The second thing we see, and really um, you can underline this in your your Bible if if you want to, Um, we see over and over again here the word blessing. Um, I I believe it's five, maybe six times. Um, Over and over the word bless. God says, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. All families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, and so over and over, there's this theme of blessing. Um, God promises Abraham blessing, and we see that's actually threefold. And if you look at Genesis 12:2, God says, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So it's kind of like a threefold blessing. Um, obviously, I will bless you. Um, that's that's kind of more generic, but he says, I'll make you a great nation. Abraham's a, a 75-year-old dude with no kids. Um, his wife is barren. And so when God says, I will make of you a great nation, he's saying, I'm going to bless you with many descendants, with many, many children. I'm going to make of you a great nation. So for Abraham, that must have been huge. Um, it, was a, it was a shameful thing, really, in this day and age to be barren. Um, to not be able to have children was a, a shameful thing. Um, to be a, 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 f- a man with a wife and 75 years old with no kids... Um, that was not the kind of thing you want. You wanted a legacy. You wanted to be able to pass an inheritance on um, to make a name for yourself, in a sense, through your kids. So for Abraham, that must have been huge. The other thing is we see God says, I will make your name great. Um, even this morning we sang a song, um, your, your Name, um, talking about how no other name be lifted high, talking about the name of God. Um, sometimes I don't think we understand what that means necessarily, um, when we see the word "name" used like this in Scripture, a lot of times it, it you could almost interchange it with the word "reputation." Um, if I have a great name, it doesn't mean um, the literally the name "Larry" is just an awesome word. Um, it means no, I have a great reputation. Um, when we sing, um, "There's no other name but Jesus that can that can heal, that can save," we're not saying literally the word "Jesus" saves us. We're saying. What's behind the word Jesus, the reputation, what he's done is what saves. And so when God says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great, he says, you're going to have a great reputation. People are going to know you. People are going to know who you are, what you've done. You're going to influence people. Um, You're going to have a great reputation. So we see kind of this threefold blessing here. Um, Then, and I think um, maybe most importantly, We see in verses 2 and in verses 3 what are called purpose clauses. Um, Purpose clauses answer the question of um, why is this happening? What's this for? Uh, We're used to them starting with words like so that. um, I'm going to give you $100 so that you can go buy whatever. Um, That's a purpose clause, so that. So we see two here. God says, I'm going to bless you like this, Abraham. And then the middle of verse 2, so that you'll be a blessing. That's why God is doing this. At the end of verse 3, it doesn't start with the word so, but we see, it says, I'll bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so right there, we see God's end game. It's Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Ultimately, that blessing is going to have a ripple effect to the ends of the earth, to every family on the earth. So if you're familiar with, where you throw a, a stone in a pond or in a lake, that, that ripple effect, those concentric circles getting bigger and bigger and going out, it's like God just dropped a boulder on Abram. Um, boom, it's going to start here and it's going to ripple out across the face of the earth. It's a global promise. It's, a, it's got this global scope. Um, I, I th- threw together a diagram. I didn't want Johnny to show me up. So I sketched out a little something. Do we have that, guys? Wait for it. All right. I know, it's high tech. We're, we're getting crazy here. Um, it's probably better than Johnny's last week, though, right? No. Um, let, me, let me walk us through this really quick. Um, this is just a quick visual summary for us visual learners. Um, what we've got here, the, uh, how we could summarize Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God is blessing his people, starting with Abram and then his family, his descendants. God blesses his people. In response, God's people bless God. That's worship. As we respond to who God is, to what he's done, that's worship. At the same time, God says, Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. He says, all families of the earth will be blessed. And so we see the blessing that comes from God to his people is meant to extend out to others, to to those who are not yet God's people. As that happens, others, the the people who don't know God, the, the other nations, the other families, begin to bless God. They, they, they begin to worship God, though they aren't his people. Um, we know in Christ, obviously, as, as we extend and, and share Christ with others, um, they come to share in Christ. And in that, they begin to worship God, to treasure Christ. And so that's just a quick visual snapshot for us. Hopefully that was helpful. Um, what I want us to see here, I think what the big question for us should be is, What exactly is this blessing of God? Um, You guys can put that away for now. Um, I don't want people to be distracted by the special effects. Um, What is this blessing of God? And and as we look at Abraham's life moving forward from Genesis 12, we see a lot of different components, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about what those are, except for one. Uh, Here's what we see. We see Abraham receive material blessings, Genesis 13.2 says, Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And so we see one, one aspect of this blessing from God is that Abraham, he becomes very rich. He's a very wealthy man. Um, and particularly, particularly in that culture, in those days, when you were rich, when you had a lot of possessions, um, that was a sign of favor from the Lord. And so when we get to the New Testament and Um, Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. His disciples are shocked because in their mindset, being rich means you're favored by God. Um, And so we see that this doesn't necessarily mean today that we're all going to be healthy, wealthy, and rich. That Wealthy and rich are the same thing. Um, It doesn't mean we're all going to be rich. It doesn't mean God's going to make us all millionaires, and that's the blessing of God for his people. But we see one aspect of God's blessing in Abram's life is he was very wealthy. Two, we see there is a um, land blessing. I didn't know what else to call this, um, but we see in Genesis 13 too, God promises Abraham, he's, verse 14 if you want to look at it, um, he takes him up to a mountain, and he says, lift up your eyes and look around. Everywhere your eye sees, I'm going to give to you. Um, so God promises Abraham this, this land as, as well. Um, that's one aspect of the blessing. Third, we see there's a social blessing. And Genesis 21 is really where we see this. Um, God's blessing of Abraham was noticed by others, by other nations around him. In Genesis 21, verse 22, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, the Philistines, another nation living nearby. They come to Abraham and said, God is with you in all that you do. So swear to me that you won't won't wrong me. You'll, You'll stay at peace with me. Let's make a treaty. Uh, let's covenant together. Uh, so we see that there's these social blessings, that as Abraham is blessed, there's some sort of way that it affects the, the people around Abraham. They take notice. Um, it brings peace. And as we think about the New Testament, that's what we call the kingdom of God, right? Where where God's purposes are prevailing, where people are submitted to God and, and have received the blessing of Christ, there's, there's a social effect to it. We're called to be salt and light. Um, and, and so there's a social effect But primarily, what I want us to see is the blessing of God to Abraham was relationship. And this goes back to what we were saying, where God is undoing the effects of the curse. Genesis 17, if you got your Bible flipped there, God comes to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. He says, Genesis 17, 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so we see that primarily, most importantly, this blessing of God had this relational aspect where, Abraham, you're going to be blessed because you are mine. I'm going to covenant with you. That word covenant we don't use very often nowadays, but the closest thing we have to it is, is the, probably the marriage vow in its purest sense. When I, when I came to Mindy on our wedding day and I said, I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to lead you for richer or poor, for better or worse, sickness and health, you are mine. Um, I was making a covenant with her. I was promising myself to her, my, my faithfulness to her. Come hell or high water, I am not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. This is the sort of thing God is doing to Abram. Here, he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to covenant with you to be your God. You and your descendants will be my people forever. And so there's this, this relational component to this blessing. Now, what happens to Abram and, and to his descendants? One thing we see, and we'll see this more this fall when we look at the story and we trace the really the storyline of the Bible all the way through in depth, the nations begin to take notice of God's blessing to Abram and to uh, his descendants. And the nations are blessed. Um, So we saw Genesis 21, uh, Abimelech comes to him and says, God is with you in all you do. So make peace with me. Be be my friend. Make a treaty with me. Um, They see that God is blessing him. Um, We see in Joseph, Abraham's descendant, Joseph goes to the nation of Egypt and the Lord uses him to save the Egyptians and to save the Israelites. Um, The nations are blessed by Abraham's descendants. Um, Moving forward, you see in um, really the... The glory days of Israel are David and Solomon. Um, we see them in 1 Kings. Um, 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba comes, that's probably from like modern day Ethiopia, comes from there to Israel, sees all that the Lord has blessed Solomon and, and the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants with, and it says she worships the Lord. She blesses the name of God. And so that's what we saw in that diagram is that these other nations are beginning to see and experience and share in the blessing of of God to Abraham and his descendants, and they're beginning to bless the Lord. They're beginning to worship the Lord. So the nations take notice. Now, like I said, we're going to spend the bulk of our time here looking at what does this have to do with us today? How do these random stories that sometimes seem so far removed from us actually affect us today? Um, really, why should, why should we care? Why should we spend our time studying and immersing ourselves in these? What do we learn um, here's how I would answer that question. Um, I think it's what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel. Um, if you got your Bible, flip to Ephesians 3 for me. We're going to flip all the way to the other end of Scripture here. Paul does this explaining, in Galatians and Ephesians in particular, of what he calls the mystery of the gospel. And here's what he says it is, Ephesians 3, verses 4 to 6. I'm going to read it for us, so... If you've got it, track along with me. Paul says this, verse 4. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is, what's the mystery of Christ? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's saying um, for, for for centuries, the Jews thought they were the special chosen people of God. And they were. They were. God blessed them. God was using the Jews. Um, and there's still sin. There's still disobedience. They were faithful and unfaithful at different points. But after Christ comes and lives in preaches and does miracles and dies and is resurrected, we get the Apostle Paul here saying this wasn't told to to men of old. They didn't know this in previous generations, but now God's revealed it to us. Here's the mystery that Gentiles, that's that's non-Jews, if you're not familiar with that term, the Gentiles are partakers of the promise too. They're part of the family. They're, They're Abram's descendants as well, though not physical. In Christ, they are Abram's descendants, We see the same thing in Galatians 3, verse 7. It is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Get this. Paul says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that means seeing that God would bring the Gentiles, the the non-Jews, into the, the family of God through faith. says, The Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's what we were just reading. He's, he's quoting there from Genesis 12. And you shall all the nations be blessed. And Paul says that here in Genesis 12, God was preaching the gospel to Abraham. And so I think it, we need to be careful. A lot of times we talk about the gospel with a very focused look, right? We say the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins so we could be forgiven and made right with God and, and things like that. And that's totally true. That is the core of the gospel. But here we see Paul calling The gospel, saying the gospel means, and you shall all nations be blessed. God was telling that to Abraham, sharing the gospel with Abraham. What's that mean? It means the gospel isn't just, Jesus died, so now you're off the hook. You're forgiven. The gospel is the good news that God is on the move and he's setting things right. He's going to bring his blessing to all the peoples of the earth. The gospel, it's got to have a global scope because if it's just for me, it's not really that good news. If, If it's just for you or for you, it's good news for you, but it's not great news if that doesn't mean if other people are excluded from it. But if the gospel means anyone across the face of the earth can turn and in Christ receive the blessing of God promised to Abraham, that's great news. That's awesome news. So we see that here in Galatians. And this is where I want to reintroduce this idea of story and why story is important. Because we've seen, really quickly, we've seen this biblical story played out. We saw Genesis 1 to 11 last week. Today we saw Genesis 12 and different snapshots of the history of Israel and Christ. We've seen the writings of Paul. This has all played out across centuries. And obviously it all happened 2,000 years ago now. So story, we, we see this story. We, we read it. We study it. We can learn it and love it. But our world comes to us. And in, in our world says things like this to us. This is what the world says your story is. You're just here by random chance. There's, there's really no ultimate meaning to your life or to who you are. Um, if, if there is meaning, you've got to create it. You've got to go out and, and figure out what that is. Uh, you're not really valuable unless you can do certain things or have a certain amount of money in your bank account. Um, our world is, is constantly telling us things like that. So subliminally, not, not straight up like that, but that's what the world says is that this is your story. This is who you are. The things that define you are things like your job, your bank account, your family, uh, your history, where you've been, what you've seen, what you're capable of. The world's saying that's what defines you. And the gospel, the, the good news, the word of God comes to us and says, no, that is not who you are. That is not your story. You are not just some pool of chemicals, some randomly formed, totally here by chance person. You are part of this. You are you are part of what God has been doing for thousands upon thousands of years. And this story is meant to shape who you are, how you live, what your values are. It's meant to shape our future, our, our present and our future. And so this is why story matters to us, because is we, if we give ourselves to the this, this story the world tells us, if, if, if we give in to the belief that I'm nothing, you know, I'm not really special, I don't really have a lot of money, I don't have a lot of skills or talents, if I give in to that and I, I let that dictate my, my value and my worth and who I am, what the heck, what's the point? Why not just give up and quit trying? But if we, if we listen to this story and if we immerse ourselves in this story of who God is and what God is doing, what God has done, it gives us a totally different outlook on life, on what we're doing, on why we're here, on why we're valuable. This is our family history. Um, I know like my wife, Mindy, her, she's Polish and Irish. Um, maybe you can tell that by talking to her. I don't know. Um, she's Polish and Irish, and both sets of her great-grandparents came over from Poland and from Ireland. Um, Her great-grandma had an Irish accent. She remembers talking to her and hearing it while she was a a kid. Uh, Mindy is connected to her family history, Um, and and that meant growing up, they went to the Polish home and ate lots of Polish food, and she knows how to say Merry Christmas in Polish and all these crazy things. Um, For me, I don't know my family history, really, Beyond my grandparents, I don't. I have no idea where we came from, or when we came, and how the heck we got here. Um, and, and so, for me, I, I'm very removed. I'm cut off from that family history, and it has very little impact on my life and on what I do and on who I am. When we let this story define who we are and what we're about and what we're doing, it gives it gives a different whole different level of meaning and of purpose and of value. It, it, it's a totally different story, and this is why we do things like communion and baptism. Actually, is because two thousand years ago, Jesus told his disciples, "Take this bread and take this this wine. Do it in remembrance of me." Um, the Israelites had done that for thousands of years before that. They called it Passover. Jesus redefined it. Said it's actually about me. And for the last two thousand years, followers of Jesus have been doing that. So when we partake in communion, we're partaking in something that our brothers and sisters, our family has been doing for 2,000 years. And in some way, it connects us to them. We become a part of the story through communion, through baptism. Now, so we've got this idea of story and why it's important. If that's the case, and if we give ourselves to this story and let it dictate who we are, what we believe, what our purpose is, what do we find? What's the effect of it? I think that we can sum it up in, in really really one big point with, with two kind of sub-points. Here's what I'd say. To be in Christ means to be an heir of the promise God gave Abraham. So we saw in Galatians and in Ephesians, if you're in Christ, spiritually you're a descendant of Abraham. You're part of Abraham's family. That means if you're in Christ, this blessing that God promised Abraham, it, it extends to you. It hasn't ended. It hasn't stopped. What We talked about what the blessing looks like, right? It, it's got different components to it, but the primary and the central one is this relational blessing. It's being restored to God, and it's being restored to people, to each other. It means, this is crazy, guys, and I hope we can get this, and man, I hope we can learn to let this story shape us and live, live this out. That means the reality is in the church, the effects of the fall are being undone. Okay? So remember, the effects of the fall, broken relationships, not um, the, the curse, not being connected to people, not being connected to God. That means in Christ's people, in, in the people of God, these things are being undone. And that's why when we see things like um, Paul writing in Romans, um, in Christ, the, or in Galatians, sorry, the, the power of sin is broken. It doesn't dictate who you are, it has no hold in you. In the people of God, these things are true. This is a reality. We've been restored to God. What's that mean for us? It, there's a ton of implications. But one thing is it means no longer do I have to run after different things to find satisfaction or to find value or to find meaning. Because I, I know my creator. I know why I'm here. It's, it's to live life with God. That, that was life before the fall. That was Adam and Eve before they sinned. They were living this life with God. It means I don't have to go to drugs or to drink. Or I don't need to, for me this is big, I don't need to travel enough and have enough adventures for my life to have meaning and purpose. It means even in the mundane getting up early, taking the train downtown, going to work, coming back, cleaning the house. It means even in the mundane, my life has value, my life has purpose, my life has meaning because I've been reconciled to my creator. At the same time, it means I don't need to justify my existence by the things that I do. So my value here in, in the people of God, in this community isn't based on what I bring to the table. I'm not here, I'm I'm not valuable to the people of Mercy Hill, to the community, because I can get up here on a Sunday morning and preach. Who cares? That's nothing. I'm valuable because I am a son of God, because I'm part of the family. I come from a big family, nine kids, 30-something first cousins, like big family, parties are fun, we have a good time, we enjoy each other my value in my family isn't because I'm the smartest or the tallest or the, the best looking or I can do this or I can do that. It's because I'm part of the family. That's why I'm important and that's why they want me at family gatherings. For each of you, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from or, or what your history has been. If you are in Christ and you are here, you are part of our family. You are valuable simply for that fact that you are loved by God. So you are loved by us, and we want you here. You are valuable. You don't need to produce. You don't need to, you don't need to do certain things or, or live a certain way or dress a certain way or talk a certain way for, for us to accept you and, and let you in. You are valuable because God says you are. You need to know that. You need to believe that. You need to live that. At the same time, we've been restored to God. We've also been restored to each other in Christ and that means that our, our lives together, as, as the church, as the people of God, are meant to be an illustration of life the way it's supposed to be. Now, that means in the church, in the people of God, our lives are meant to be an illustration of life without the fall. If I can say it like that. Life not under the curse anymore let me let me flesh that out a little bit with us for, for us We've said here before at Mercy Hill that living together community life together isn't optional, um, and I want to explain why we say that and what we mean by that it we don't say life living together is is not optional because if I live by myself, I'm going to be lonely, and I'm not going to survive. And um, We don't live together just so we're not lonely. We don't do community just so my, my relational needs are met. The whole point of the gospel is to create a new people that live life together in a way that the world takes notice. One, one guy said it like this, one theologian. He says, this is the most effective thing the church can do for the world. It's to actually be the church. It's to be the people of God living in the freedom of Christ. He says this too. I'm going to repeat this twice because it's, it's deep. He says, the only way for the world to know it's being redeemed is for the church to point to the Redeemer by being a redeemed people. So the world doesn't know it, it needs... Redemption. The world doesn't know it has a problem. We are blind to our sin. We are, are dead in our sins and trespasses. We don't know something's wrong if we're apart from Christ, right? That's, that's all of our stories. The world doesn't know it needs it. The only way for the world to know it is being redeemed, the only way the world can know that God is at work redeeming, is for the church to point to the Redeemer, Christ, by being a redeemed people, so our, our life together is meant to point a dying world to the Redeemer. It's meant to, to show an alternative way of living, the, the way life is meant to be lived. And I'll be honest, guys, like this is hard, first off, because sin is still, it still affects us, right? When we live life together, it's messy, and it can be painful. But because in Christ we've learned the, the art of confession and true forgiveness— We can do this. We can live life together. I can really hurt Kern or I can really hurt Ethan but because in Christ we've experienced forgiveness for incredible, incredible wrongdoing, that means that when I really hurt Ethan, I can come to him and I can humbly confess and I can find real forgiveness and community can stay intact. We can continue to live life together. Now, Guys, as I was preparing for this, I was stirred and gripped by this. Think about this. What if we were a group of people who weren't content being relative strangers? What if, what if we were people who weren't content just seeing each other on Sunday? How you doing? How about them bears? Talk about the weather. What if we weren't those people, but we were driven to go deeper? We were driven to get involved in each other's lives. What if... What if we were a family where people's needs were actually met? I think that's why we read Acts, Acts 2, Acts 4, and we find the early church to be such an incredible, almost impossible thing, is needs were actually met. They were selling their land because someone was in need and giving the money to that guy. That's crazy. What if we were actually a people like that where I don't, you know, I don't store out my three to six months emergency saving and then sit on that when Johnny's having problems feeding his kids. I I gladly take all six months of that, even if it means my family's open to a new level of risk, and I give it to Johnny so he can feed his kids because I love him and because he's part of my family. What if we were that kind of people? What What if this was a place where you didn't need to produce to be valuable, like I just said? You could just be who you are You could not produce, you could not bring something to the table, and you were still just as valuable as the guy up front preaching. What if that was a reality here? What if, like I said, this is a place where I can, where feelings can really be hurt, where where hurt can go deep, and where real forgiveness was actually possible. To a world out there that is completely foreign. That, that is not possible in the world. It, on the world's terms, with what the world values, that's not possible. It's only possible among the people of God, because we, in Christ we found f- forgiveness, we found mercy, we found grace. We've experienced it, so now we can show it to each other. Now, if we could be that sort of people, if we, if we live th- that sort of life as a family, I guarantee people would take notice. I I guarantee it. It would be a whole new aspect of proclaiming the good news as as we are living that sort of life. And the good news is that because of the story we're a part of, because of this, that's actually possible. Because of Christ, we actually can be that sort of people. We have to work hard. We have to let this story shape our lives, Not, not the story out there. But we can be that sort of people. So, like I said, we are, to be in Christ means you're an, you're an heir of this blessing that Abraham was promised. That means you're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to each other. Last part, it means we're also heirs of the responsibility given to Abram. Remember, we saw those two purpose clauses in Genesis 12. God said, You're going to be blessed so that you will be a blessing. You're going to be blessed, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So to be in Christ, to be a spiritual descendant of Abraham, means that we are blessed like this. We've been brought back to God, brought to each other, so that the ends of the earth will know and will be blessed in the same way. We're recipients of the same mission God gave Abraham. This is important for us to get. Particularly as we're we're talking this summer about the mission of God, Um, Paul. One way Paul illustrates what happened to us when we came to Christ, he says we were adopted into God's family. Right, so now we're brothers and sisters. We're we're all part of the family of God in Christ. Just like real physical human adoption, it doesn't just mean I reap all the benefits of being in the family. Like okay, I was an orphan. Now I'm part of the family. Now that means I get, I get brothers and sisters. And, I, you know, mom cooks food for me. And it doesn't just mean I reap the blessings. At the same time, I also am given the same responsibility because I'm part of the family. That means my parents do, like, short-term crisis fostering. Um, we've had fam- kids live with us, I mean, babies, teenagers, everything in between. And sometimes they're with us for a weekend. Sometimes it's for nine months or for a year. Um, but as soon as those kids, especially the older ones who are capable, when they come into the house, they're put to work. Like they become a real part of the family. That means they're doing chores. That means they're not just sitting around enjoying having a family. No, to be part of the family means you're responsible for what the family's doing. If our family's going this way, you're not going that way. You're coming with us because you're part of the family. So adoption means responsibility as well as, as, as blessings and privileges. What that means for us, guys, is, is the family of God, is that as we let this story, the good news of, of Christ, the good news of the gospel, shape us and define us and, and choose in our priorities, it means that ultimately we're gripped by the reason for it. It means that being part of the family, letting my life be shaped by this story, it means that ultimately... I'm, I'm gripped by the purpose for it all. And the purpose was that this blessing of knowing God, of of the undoing of the fall would extend to all nations, to, to every family of the earth, that everyone would hear, everyone would know and respond and, and receive the blessing of Abraham. So as the blessing of God comes into our lives, the trajectory is always meant to be outwards. We're not just meant to consume, we're meant to produce, we're meant to, to, to reproduce, to go out. I'm not just supposed to be a disciple of Christ. I'm supposed to make disciples of Christ and teach them to make more disciples. There's, there's this built-in reproduction. Really what we're talking about is our story gives us our purpose. So Anigo Montoya in The Princess Bride, his story gave him his purpose. His, his purpose became avenging his father because his father was wrongfully killed. Stupid example But our story gives us our purpose. And when our story is we are the descendants of Abraham who lived thousands and thousands of years ago and was given a mission, his mission becomes our mission too. We receive the same responsibility. could say it like this. Johnny talked about last week how God relentlessly pursues rebellious people because he loves them. And he talked about how we just saw in Luke for the past three years... That's what Jesus did over and over. The outcasts, the downtrodden, the lost, the ones people didn't care about. Even the proud religious ones. Jesus pursued lost people. We could say it like this. Being in Christ means that our story teaches us and enables us to do the same exact thing. It, in Christ, we're taught to seek out responsibility for other people. We're taught to sacrifice for others, just like Christ did. We're taught to love to the point of hurt and pain, just like Christ did. We're we're taught to pursue. We're taught to be the ones who take initiative. We don't sit back in, in this church building and hope that a lost world comes in the doors. We go out to a lost and dying world and we pursue relentlessly in love over and over and over, pursuing lost hurt people, so that they can experience the same sort of blessing we've received in Christ. That's what this means. And that's why throughout this series and, and moving on, it's why we've got to keep this global focus. Because God is doing something across the globe. He is undoing the effects of sin. He's, he's renewing and restoring. And someday, this story is going to be finished. It's going to be done, guys. It's, it's going to happen. You can bet on it. Put all your eggs into this basket. God is going to accomplish his purposes through his people. The, the goal, the, the end game is that all families of the earth will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham, ultimately Jesus, and his people. That's, that's the plan. That's, that's where this whole thing's going. That's the purpose of life. So mission is not just sending someone to Brazil to, to disciple families. Mission is what we do. We serve a missional God, so we live missional lives. We've been blessed, so we seek to be a blessing. We we reproduce. That's what this means. Does that make sense? Are you you with me? Okay. We're going to do something a little different here as we close. I hope you're, you're cool with it. You will be. I got the microphone, so it's my show. Andy, can you pull up Psalm 67? Psalm 67 is... Um, You see a little introduction there, Um, the first line or two is actually the introduction. Psalm 67 is a a psalm from the Bible. Um, It was written way back in the day, um, and the people of Israel used to sing this and to pray this together. Um, And it completely ties in with what we're talking about this morning. I'm going to read it to us, but then what I want to ask us to do is to pray this together. Literally, to stand up and to out loud together, pray it to the Lord. Here's what it says. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So he's just like we saw with Abraham. God, will you bless us? Will you be gracious to us? Verse 2. So that your saving way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So the people of Israel, way back in the day, thousands of years ago, they got this. They weren't always faithful to it, but they got that they'd been blessed as the people, the as Abraham's descendants, as his offspring, that God was blessing them so that all nations would come to know him and would come to praise him, would be glad and sing for joy as they come to know this God. So as we pray this, it's not, there's no funny business here. It's not just stand up and recite this for the heck of it. Because this sort of prayer ought to become the, the cry of our hearts, that God would pour out his goodness on us, so that through us, through his people, a lost and dying world would come to know. And would come to rejoice and come to love him. And so can we do that? Are you guys, you guys with me? Can we stand up and pray this together? <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll skip over the first two lines there, the introduction. Um, but I'll start praying and then let's just pray it out loud together. Oh Father, may God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face to shine upon us, that your saving way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Guys, our family, our brothers and sisters, the people of God have been literally praying and singing that for five thousand years. And and we're a part of that. We're we're a continuing part of that story of what God is doing. That's, that's why we pray something like this together. Because this is what we want to see happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray myself and close this out now. Father, we know that these things we, we read here in Psalm 67 about you are true. You judge the people with equity. You guide the nations on the earth. Lord, you are good and you are gracious. And you are working out a plan that has been in the works for, for ages. God, we're so, so grateful to be part of your family, that you have, in spite of our own rebellion, you've blessed us in Christ with so much that we don't deserve, Lord. You've shown us grace and mercy. God, you've, you've lavished forgiveness and love upon us when we want nothing to do with it. And you've made us your children. You've given us a purpose and a cause. God, and so we thank you. And with the psalmist here, together, we pray, we ask that you would continue to bless us, not so that we can consume it and enjoy it and sit back on our butts, but, Lord, so that as we receive your blessing, the nations would know, the lost would hear, the nations would sing for joy and would come to know you and love you and fear you. God, we pray that you would teach us how to let your story define who we are and examine and, and redefine where necessary our priorities and our values and our actions. God, you are God. You are the King. You are the Creator. You are our Savior and our Lord. And it is our joy to live life with you and to give ourselves to your purposes. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.